right, joining me now, former mayor of New York, former presidential candidate, and current congressional candidate, Bill de Blasio. Mayor de Blasio, great to have you back on. It is good to be back with you, Cenk, reminding your audience you were one of the first people to ever recognize in 2013 that little old me was gonna win the mayor's race. You called it, baby. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate it. And that's because you were running a really strong and progressive campaign. And that's why I thought you were gonna rise in the polls and win, and you did. So, and here we are again now. So now you're running in the 10th district in New York. There was massive redistricting in New York. Created this maelstrom of political machinations, uh, and and now there's a ton of people in that race. Um, so, including some progressives, some real progressives. So, uh, it's very rare that there are two progressives in a race, let alone more. But certainly, Mondaire Jones it would be considered progressive, and he's also in this race. So, uh, tell us why folks should vote for you instead of the others. First of all, I love the phrase maelstrom of machinations. It's, uh, this, <laughs> this district was just the strangest thing between redistricting court cases, everything, and suddenly there's a brand new congressional district no one's ever seen before in Brooklyn and Manhattan. So you're kind of right the way it happened. But look, my view is this, uh, I ran for mayor on a thoroughly progressive platform and then we went and did it. And this is the crux of my argument that progressives can actually get something done, we are not just about pushing the spectrum, which we should do, or fighting noble battles in an impossible Congress, but actually getting things done. So we did, and we created universal free pre-K and 3K for all here in New York City. Paid sick days, $15 minimum wage, uh, rent freezes for rent regulated uh, tenants. We did that multiple times. Uh, there are so many pieces of the agenda that we brought to life. And I think the difference is there can be good progressives running against each other who share values, but the question is who knows how to set the agenda and bring it to fruition and actually get the change our people need. Working people are suffering, especially with the dynamic of COVID and everything that's come with it. And exactly what I've tried to do in my eight years as mayor, which was fight inequality, particularly income inequality, come up with things that actually could happen and reach working people. That's what I want to do as a member of Congress. And Jenk, if you were to say, hey, dude, you might be in the minority in the House, I'd immediately say a Congress member can fight to get the administration to use all its tools for progressive change, which they are not doing, and fight locally and fight on the state level as well. So to me, it's a platform for tangible progressive change. And what I'm telling people is, I've actually done it. I believe in it. I can show you that we can actually continue to achieve this change. That's why I'm running. Well, you read my mind. I was gonna go there, so let me go there now. Um, so first, uh, I fact check uh, guests on the show all the time. So I'm here to tell you that, uh, they, that Mayor de Blasio did actually do a renowned universal pre-K program. And it did work, and he did do a bill guaranteeing paid sick days for all city workers, and it did work. So you have to tell the good and the and the bad when it's appropriate. In this case, those things are true. But Mayor de Blasio, when you go to Congress, it is a different dynamic. And the people yeah. blocking similar legislation, whether universal pre-K, paid family leave, child tax credit, etc. Uh, yes, they're Republicans. There's a wall of Republicans. They all disagree. Uh, they don't want any of it. But there's also Democrats, like Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema, uh, and 
what do you do and what would you do right now? I mean, we found out today, Manchin's blocking climate change, any climate change legislation, any increase in taxes for corporations or the wealthy. So if you were in Congress, what would you do with a problem like Manchin? I think there's two pieces of the equation that I see immediately. And I think it's a tragedy that Joe Manchin took the stand he did. We, you know, I can't say anyone didn't see the pattern of his game, but he did tell people consistently in the last few months that he could get there on climate, on higher corporate taxes, on prescription drug costs. And suddenly, you know, the rugs pulled out from us once again. So I think the, the jury has come back on who Manchin is and who he wants to be. And it's really a tragedy for this country. The two things I would think of immediately, one, okay, change the venue, go to the executive branch. I think the Biden approach, I think the, the, the vision was great and is great, build back better. Uh, so many other pieces of legislation that are right on target. And yet there was a deference to the legislative process and the legislative process hasn't been functioning. So then the question is, how do you crank it at the executive level? Do every conceivable thing, no matter how much spectrum pushing it takes. And I don't think to date Democrats and progressives have done a good enough job putting pressure on the Biden administration to use every tool, every weapon, just go for it because it's clear. And these, this last thing from Manchin just proves it. Legislating tragically is not working except for in a very few areas. Go full on with executive power. The second point is to try and change uh, the dynamics of what's possible. Um, $15 minimum wage, we all remember when people used to dismiss that. A bunch of us fought for it all over the country, made it a mainstream issue. Pre-K for all that I did, I had to get that by a Republican uh, state Senate and a quasi-Republican Democratic governor called Andrew Cuomo, who both tried to stop it. We had built so much popular support for it, they couldn't. Uh, I think if, if you know there are states where there's uh, a senator in the way, you got to go and organize in those states and work with local forces, local progressive forces to, to raise the heat. And that doesn't necessarily mean, that doesn't always mean primarying some, because primarying a lot of times is not gonna get you anywhere, but it does mean uh, forcing their hand from underneath in every way we can. And I guess one third thing that makes a lot of sense, when you're, when you're stymied at the federal level, go to the state and local level. Uh, New York is a relatively progressive state, but we're really backwards still on a bunch of issues. We still haven't gone far enough on taxing the wealthy and corporations, for example. Um, if you can't win the battle in one venue, go to another venue, and that helps to push the spectrum in a bigger way. Okay, well, pressuring Manchin and Biden is music to my ears, I'll be honest about that. Uh, I don't think anybody who watches TYT would be surprised by that. Uh, by the way, the website's builddeblasio.com. Uh, so, uh, Mayor, let's go to another tough question about what happened in this in, in Congress. Um, so progressives wanted to couple infrastructure bill with Build Back Better. And they said if we, uh, corporate Democrats and Republicans wanted the infrastructure bill, Joe Manchin wanted the infrastructure bill. If we decouple it, we won't be able to pass Build Back Better because Joe Manchin isn't going to keep his word. Uh, there was a lot of drama around that and ultimately everyone but six Congress people uh, allowed the decoupling. And it turns out, let's be honest, the six were right. Um, once right. it was decoupled, Build Back Better was eviscerated and now does not exist. Uh, now, you have the benefit of hindsight. You weren't there at the time, right? But, uh, and it is, it's not an easy question in politics because, you know, in the New York delegation, you got AOC and Jamal Bowman that didn't want to decouple, so they voted no on infrastructure bill. 
And then you've got people like Mondaire Jones who's running against you, who was a congressman at the time and is still a congressman for now. Uh, and and uh, Hakeem Jeffries also in the New York delegation that said, no, it's okay to decouple because we've got to pass the infrastructure bill. How would you have voted? I'll be scrupulously honest. At the time, I thought there was so much momentum and you know relative good faith to get Build Back Better done that I would have said, okay, the infrastructure bill is stunning unto itself, right? I mean, as a progressive, I yearned for something like that infrastructure bill for decades and thought it was next to impossible. And so let's give it its due. It was a huge victory. But I thought that Build Back Better would happen in some substantial form. The progressives who said, hey, we're being hoodwinked, unfortunately, especially in the last 24 hours, they've been proven 100% right. And I'm sad. So I would have thought, hey, oh, we can we can do this infrastructure bill. It is you know, it's so good, let's do it and we'll finish with Build Back Better after. But unfortunately, we learned a powerful lesson that, the, as you say, the corporate Democrats, once again, uh, have proven that they cannot play by, they don't play by the rules they ask of us. And I think this, Cenk, this is such an important point. Progressives are asked to go along with moderate Democrats when the moderate wins the presidential nomination or whatever other choice you want. Progressives are always told, fold in, fold in. Um, you know, for the greater good, to stop the Republicans, whatever. And we traditionally do. But when the shoe's on the other foot, there is not such loyalty. And this is a prime example of it. So I think I would have thought move infrastructure. I think I would have been wrong. And I have now watched this scenario and it informs me that until we see people like Manchin and Cinema act differently, then we should play hardball with them. Yeah. Here, here, and we'll hold you to that if you win. Um, okay, so uh, I want to ask you about your time in the mayor's office because it was an enigma, to be honest. Um, so uh, on the one hand, uh, you basically stopped stop and frisk, which was terrible and racist and discriminatory, and crime went down. Holy cow, that worked, right? Uh, and uh, a lot of the police uh, unions were not happy with you. A lot of conservatives were not happy with you, but then. Uh, some on the left said you didn't do enough police reform. Uh, and it seemed like you got hit on a lot of sides. Um, so what happened when you were mayor of New York? What, you know, In terms of driving your polling numbers down, what do you think was the main cause of that? Well, Jack, I have been very painfully transparent about the fact that I don't, I think I didn't handle some things the right way. I think I failed to give particularly in my second term, a clear enough vision. This is, I offered this in the Atlantic a couple months back as, as sort of painful uh, learned advice that I offered Joe Biden that I think I forgot to give people a clear sense of direction. Um, we did a very substantial amount of police reform on all sorts of levels, but we stopped making it clear to people what it was and we stopped talking about the next steps in a way that was coherent. I, I think you just said something really important. I was attacked by the police unions pretty much from day one till the end of my administration. And yet folks on the left were like, well, he didn't do enough. Well, you know, I always felt like, hold on guys. You know, we ended stop and frisk and we instituted neighborhood policing. We retrained the entire police force in de-escalation. We empowered the civilian complaint review board. We did all these progressive things and the police unions were attacking me all the time. So you'd think that would send a signal, hey, this guy's moving things in the right direction. But I don't think I articulated the vision well enough. And I think I made mistakes during an incredibly challenging time around COVID and uh, the protests in May and June of 2020. 
And I, and if I could do everything over again, I would communicate very, very differently. I, I don't think necessarily if, if good progressive people looked at all the substance, they would disagree with a lot of the things we've done. I'm sure they would say, hey, here's some things I think you could have gone farther. But I think if they saw the whole plan, the whole platform laid out and all we did, they'd say, hey, we generally agree with that. But I didn't communicate it in a way that was clear and compelling. And I think a lot of folks felt a sense of drift as a result. And look, we're in a very emotional work. If you're not connecting with people, if you're not providing that sense of vision, you lose people. Um, yeah. And and on top of that, of course, the last few years trying to govern through COVID, you know, in some ways, uh, if not, it's not an impossible task. We got some stuff done. I'm very proud we did strong vaccine mandates. We kept schools open. We did stuff that really worked. But I think it was also a time when people were just in such pain. Yeah. It was very easy to be to feel negative about anyone in power, honestly. Yeah, that was a, a very honest answer. So uh, we're uh, totally out of time, but I gotta ask you two more questions. So I'm gonna push on. So we're totally uh, out of time. Let's do it. Yeah. It's, <laughs> who cares? Let's go. Uh, okay. So um, you get special extra credit since you were you were an early adopter. <laughs> okay. So uh, you said you wish you'd communicate differently, and I thought that was really interesting. What do you mean? How would you have communicated differently? I think um, one of them, I remember some of the signal, sort of signal points where certain progressive voices are like, oh, maybe he you know, isn't sticking to the agenda and all. And I was really confused, honestly, because the substantive agenda was extremely strong. Like, for example, empowering the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which is, was a, a fight that's been going on for 50 years in New York City. You know, David Dinkins got it created and then Rudy Giuliani and Michael Bloomberg gutted it. Yeah, so this is really a huge check and balance on uh, police misconduct and a huge accountability tool. And we strengthened it, gave it more lawyers, gave it more money, all these things. I thought, oh, people are going to see it. But I said a thing in my Atlantic uh, op-ed a few months ago. I said, I, mis- I mistook policy for popularity. I think I did some, and my team did some really good policy. I forgot to articulate it in a way that was emotionally and meaningful, you know, meaningful and compelling to people. Which is unfortunately sometimes a democratic disease. I have to say our opponents on the right are really good at pushing the emotional buttons. I think I failed to do that. And then there were some individual incidents um, where people saw videos that were really painful. And and that's what folks want to talk about and respond to. And I kind of got into the mode, Jank, of like, I, I don't want to govern from video to video. I'm trying to make bigger structural change. But actually, people needed the response to the videos. And they needed to hear something they could feel authentically. And as I said, during, during the protests in May and June 2020, I think, I needed to find a way to both protect lives, and I was, you know, the one thing I always said was we we could not let people die during those protests, even though there was a lot of violence, there was looting, there was really painful stuff going on. We couldn't let people die. We couldn't let anyone, a civilian, an officer, a bystander, anyone die, and we didn't. But I didn't sort of meet the moment of what folks were feeling about the need for change and speak to it. And sometimes I spoke kind of governmentally and clinically in a way that I think Biden does too often also sort of said, here's how we dealt with this situation and no one died and we sort of kept peace and we kept some kind of um, ability to move forward. But that's not what people wanted to hear. They wanted to hear, here's a pathway to social justice. And I was working on the path, but I don't think I articulated it. And I don't blame anyone who's like, if you're not using a language we can feel, then we're doubting of you. Yeah. 
That's another startlingly honest answer. All right, and last one is you, in other uh, interviews, you've talked about the bubble that uh, um, that you're in as an executive, in that case, mayor of New York City. Um, what is that bubble and what does it do to you? Hmm. It's really a cautionary tale, Jenk. Um, first of all, you know, it's like a really screwed up video game being mayor of New York City in the sense of like, you know, in a, in a video game, you're supposed to like you 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 master or complete a level, and then you go up to the next level and all that. Well, it's like that's happening all the time, faster, faster, more than you want it to. Um, and it got much worse in the course of my eight years. I think just literally the dynamics around uh, Trumpism and Trump obviously changed everything, made everything more difficult, more emotional. Let alone my dynamics, difficult dynamics with Cuomo. Social media, there's like a lot of things that just evolved and got tougher, faster all the time. And there's a there's a bunker mentality. It, I think it happens with a lot of uh, elected uh, executives. I think it's really more of an executive thing than a legislator thing. Uh, you kind of there's incoming all the time. There's negativity. There's tough questions. There's scrutiny. A lot of it's valid. Some of it, but maybe less so. But you end up. Kind of looking for solace, looking for a calm with a an inner circle with your family, and you. It's for my case, it was easy to sort of recede a bit from the world, and I'm not happy about it, because in fact, what you should do is go out to the world more in those situations. It's kind of counterintuitive. You're feeling overwhelmed. You're feeling kind of surrounded and and an ever changing dynamic, and nothing ever feels like it's stable or working, no matter how much you try. And so the answer is really to engage more. And I found that, for example, I did 70 town hall meetings, and those were some of the best times I had as mayor, engaging with people, even when there was tussles and disagreements. But it kind of wears on you. Eight years is a long time, and it wears on you. And so I think it creates more of a bubble, more of a bunker mentality. And you start, you know, you don't see as well. I, I got very frustrated with the media, but now I look back and I'm like, well, wait a minute, you know, some of that was my own fault, and I would have been much better off just trying to engage, even if I was frustrated, sort of step back, breathe, connect humanly, uh, see what they were trying to do from their perspective. And it just fed on itself. And if I could do it over again, and, you know, Jenk, if, if uh, you find a pathway back in time, like a fissure in time that allows us to go and do it over again, you know, I would approach it very differently. I really would. Yeah, look, I, I've got to give you credit on this alone. Uh, this is one of the most honest uh, and and fair interviews I've done. Uh, you're almost too fair. Uh, like mainstream media in New York was terrible to you, and often in in, in like non-objective, completely unfair ways. So um, so, but I really appreciate you looking inward and and figuring out what you did right and what you did wrong. And and as we explained there, there's a really healthy record of things that were done right. Um, and now Mayor Bill de Blasio is running in New York's 10th district. The website is BillDeBlasio.com. Mayor, uh, great to have you on, really appreciate it. Thank you, Jen, you be well. Thank you, you too. Are adopted folks more likely uh, to be against choice? Oh, interesting question. Well, that's among the things that we're gonna to talk to Annie Wu Henry about. She's a communication specialist for progressive campaigns and organizations. She's a digital organizer for PA Stands Up. Annie, welcome. Hi. 
Hey. Thanks for having me. No problem. So look, it's a starting point for a conversation. Uh, uh, you were adopted and I th apparently some people assume uh, that means that you would be against choice. I don't know why that assumption is, I mean, I could figure out why that assumption exists, but, uh, but is that true? No, and I think that you know the solution that adoption is for an unwanted pregnancy is just kind of it just doesn't make sense to me as an argument because it really isn't. You know, it's not an alternative to abortion because it doesn't stop you from being pregnant. Um, it could be potentially a solution if you don't want to be a parent and you do want to carry a pregnancy to term, but. It is not a solution if you do not want to give birth. It is not a solution if you don't want to be pregnant. And so I really don't understand why that is just thrown around as like, well, you can just put your child up for adoption. And it's also like the adoptee community, you're kind of speaking for us and you probably don't know that much about the topic. So why are you doing that? Well, it's because they're right wingers. They'll talk about things that they don't know all the time. It's kind of what they do for a living. But I love that distinction you made. I hadn't heard that before. I mean, adoption is about whether you want a parent. It isn't about whether you want to be pregnant. That's a different question, right? And so, Annie, yeah. But for example, my grandmother considered having an abortion very, very seriously. Considered for about, and that turned out to be my dad. Uh, and she chose not to at the end, and so that's why we're here. But that was her choice. <laughs> I think a lot of times people right. miss the fact that people can choose to do what they want, and it doesn't mean that everybody's going to terminate their pregnancy, right? Right, right. And I think that you know, the question that I get posed, which I again don't really understand why. Um, is like, well, you wouldn't be here, like you're saying about your father, you wouldn't be here if your mother had had an abortion. And there's a lot of reasons why any of us wouldn't be here. You know, that's like, if, if your parents were tired that night, if they had used a form of contraception, like if something small had been different, like you probably wouldn't be here either. And so I don't understand why you're trying to bring that into the conversation, this random hypothetical that really is is not an argument. Yeah, you know what? Another great point because you wouldn't be here applying. So is weird in a lot of ways. First of all, okay, maybe my grandmother would have had a different kid later, and then they would have had a different kid, and that guy might be better than me. <laughs> and now he's not here. Are you guys happy? Now he's not here because she didn't have the abortion. Um, so, and, and and to your point, I mean, we just talked about this on another episode, just like a couple of days ago. You know, depending on when that act reaches a conclusion, even a second difference, and it's a different person. So, like, are we going around going, "Hey, Dad, when did you? Why did you arrive at the conclusion at that time instead of a different time?" If you had, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> it's such a silly right. argument. Okay. Yeah, I just I I I don't understand that argument in general. Nobody brings it up to anyone else. Like, you know, just the fact that I I was adopted. Okay, um, and you could really use that argument for anything in life. Like, if you get in a car, like you could get in an accident at any point. Like, you can you can change. The theoretical future for for any situation, but all it is like it's just hypotheticals. Like it's it doesn't matter. It's not an argument. 
<laughs> I'm picturing people having super awkward conversations with their parents. <laughs> or people yelling at, at, at my dad going, you know what? If you'd lasted longer, he wouldn't be here. Okay. Anyways, it got yeah. weird. <laughs> Anyways, so Annie, you did a, a at least one video that I saw about abortion, and um, and you t uh, talked about um, a couple of different ways that it that affects people. And I want to just give you the floor on that a little bit, and 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 have you talk about that reaction that you had. Yeah, I think that you know. Obviously, after the decision from the Supreme Court came out, there there were a lot of really justified emotions from everyone of being mad at, you know, the justices, at being mad at legislators, at being mad at a lot of different things, which or being upset at all of these things. Which again, all of those reactions are are very very valid. Um, but I really want to make sure, and in, in the work that I do, I always try to remember like what it's all about and what this issue and what this decision is about is about the people and the people that need to have this access to healthcare. And it is so many different types of people for so many different reasons, all of them being equally valid. Like, no matter what reason you seek abortion care or you seek reproductive health care, like, they're all valid. And it's about the people. And it's about those, those are the people that are going to be hurt by this decision. And just remembering that while we're also, you know, trying to keep pressure on legislators and um, do all of these other things in protest, like remembering, remembering the humans behind it that are like really going to be impacted. And so I thought that that thread, which was written um, by an abortion care clinic worker, like back in 2021, that I read on Twitter and had gotten permission to share. Um, and all of the names were changed for safety purposes, but all the stories were real. I thought that it was just so powerful because it it, it talks about you know a, a trans man that is going through body dysmorphia because of a pregnancy that he needs to terminate. It talks about you know young children who are you know are, are pregnant and need to deal with that. It talks about people who were in really bad situations with their partners um, or with people who weren't their partners. And then it also just talks about people who simply like don't want to be pregnant. And again, all of those things are, are okay. And all of those people are, all of those types of people are going to be impacted by this decision and are going to be harmed by it, which is just why the fight is so important. Yeah, uh, so you, as a young progressive activist, uh, what do you think about uh, how the Democratic Party has reacted to the ruling? I mean, I think that we we needed to be more prepared. I think there are certain legislators, there's like Elizabeth Warren and AOC who come to mind that have come forth and given very pragma pragmatic plans of what we can be doing, what we can be doing now. and with the leak that came out in what was it early May, whoever leaked that out, again, we don't know who or why, but they, they gave us some time to prepare for this, as well as the fact that, you know, the Republican Party has been saying that this was one of their major goals for decades, like before I was even around. Um, and so we, we shouldn't be surprised. And so I think with one of the frustrations I've had with just the the party and how things have been handled is our 
our lack of preparedness for it. And when the decision came out, kind of the the shock that there seemed to be around it. And while yes, it was you definitely could never probably fully prepare yourself, even if you were aware that this was going to happen, but we could have had like plans and things in order um, to also from our leadership to make you know, the civilians in this country um, feel better from their leaders. And I think that that was something that was was lacking. Um, how do you respond to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris saying, well, just vote more. Uh, and so if you vote um, for Democrats more, uh, then we'll have enough votes to be able to make a difference. I mean, I understand the concept of voting. Um, and I think that it's important as someone who's worked on campaigns, like voting is important. Um, it's the reason why, you know, we have Katanji Brown Jackson in the court and the decision wasn't a little bit worse. Um, it is the reason why then with the Senate that it, she was able to be confirmed and with Joe Biden, she was able to be nominated. However, voting is not the only answer. And I think that that needs to be made clear as well. Um, the election for the midterms is in November and there are people that need care and need support from now until then. Um, and so voting I think is something that yes, is a talking point, but it should not be the only talking point. We also need to be taking action. We also need to be putting um, pressure on our current electeds to do what they can now. Again, like I was saying, like there have been plans been put forward by people like AOC and Elizabeth Warren that we can be enacting and we can be fighting for. And so I think saying just vote is like very simplistic and also just very annoying to people because they have been voting and that's that's it, it didn't help in certain cases uh, because of you know some of the flaws in our system. Um, but yep. I think that they they need to make sure that when they're messaging that they let people know that Yes, vote, but that's not the only thing you should be doing. And we understand that that's not the only thing that you should be doing or that we should be doing. And that that part of the messaging is left off. Yeah, um, well, you made a great point. We already voted for you. Why don't you do something? Um, but um, yeah. uh, so, all right, uh, you're a young progressive. I'm curious, do you have any right wing or Republican friends? Friends, uh, n not so much, uh, which uh, it's interesting because I'm from a very rural conservative area. Um, and I have a lot of my best friends that I grew up with that I've known since we were too young to know anything about politics. Um, and we all grew up and have similar views. And we were talking about that. And, you know, I, I like to think that I surround myself with people who care about others who try to listen to experts, who try to listen to facts, who try to think critically, um, who, again, care about more than just themselves, who aren't just driven by things like money. And so I guess it makes sense then that the people that I surround myself with are are progressive um, or that align with my my political or I'd say like human rights views. Um, but I do have, you know, a lot of conservative family members as well as, you know, being from a conservative rural town, I, I know a lot of people who who are very different in their uh, political or 
again, like human rights beliefs uh, than myself. All right, one last quick question. Uh, you did a really fun lip syncing yeah. video of Anna's um, I don't care about your religion rant. Uh, she's my co-host on the Young Turks. Uh, what inspired you to do that? I think, well, A, the religious argument is just like, feels so nonsensical to me. Like, first of all, the separation of church and state. Um, but second of all, I was raised in, which I think would surprise people. I was raised in a like fairly religious household. My parents still like go to church every Sunday and are pretty involved. They aren't like the evangelical, right? I always, they're pretty wholesome and like just good people and practice what the Bible, because again, I grew up in a pretty religious household. So I've, I've read the Bible, I've memorized parts of the Bible. I know a lot about it, um, which is why the religious argument is just like so infuriating because like the Bible doesn't talk about the life starting at conception. Like the Bible pretty much says that you should be looking out for others, like caring for other people, um, helping people, especially those who are worse off than you. Like a lot of socialism in the Bible. Um, and so like the religion argument really just like hits a nerve for me because uh, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense, especially like imposing that upon other people who don't practice your religion. And again, the arguments that they use are just very much weaponizing religion and not even necessarily going off of what Christianity says. Um, so I, I've always loved that rant that she does. Um, I think that it's, you know, very powerful, gets to the point, and it, it's gone viral, I know, like many times. Um, and so, you know, I appreciate you guys and Anna using the platforms like TYT to to share that message. And so I wanted to share it with the people in my life as well as like be like, you know, there's there's more of us. Um, that believe this, not just one person. Um, and I think that's important because in these times it can feel very helpless sometimes, but it's not hopeless and we're not alone. There's so many people that are in this fight. And so I wanted to show like, you know, here's here's another woman speaking on this. I really, I really resonate with the message and I'm gonna say it too. Yeah, no, I love it. But I will do a quick fact check. Uh, Jesus wasn't just a socialist, he was an absolute <laughs> communist. He said, give away all of your possessions to the poor. Uh, so it doesn't get, I mean, Karl Marx would blush at what Jesus said. Uh, and uh, and of course, the Bible is pro-abortion. Numbers 5, 11 through 31, uh, the priest performs the abortion and God is the one uh, that executes it. Um, so um, everything you've ever heard about the Bible is wrong, especially if you heard it from a right winger. All right, Annie Wu Henry, uh, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.